morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to the chapel at Warren Valley. Um, before we begin our service, just want to give you uh, just a couple of announcements. Um, June 20th, 24th, we have VBS. Um, we need volunteers from the high school seniors and juniors. Uh, it's Sherry Miller. Let's see, she may not be here today. But uh, there's a VBS table in the front. If you can help out on VBS on the 20th, 24th, make sure that you sign the, uh, the, the, uh, the sheet on the front. And, uh, and uh, I think you have information on the Welcome Center about uh, signing up as a volunteer for VBS. And they do need volunteers. They need guidance, counselors, and, and things uh, to, to help out in VBS. Also, June 18th, there's going to be a men's breakfast. There is a sign-up sheet in the front on the Welcome Center. So June 18th, keep that date. Uh, we want uh, men to come out. We're going to have breakfast. We're going to have a, a little a, a speaker from 9 to 11. And uh, we want everyone who can come to come. And we want to get to know each and every person here. So listen, turn to somebody, give them a fist bump and say, man, I'm glad you're here. Give them a fist bump. Yeah. <laughs> say you're glad you're here. Amen. <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, Psalm 104 says, I will enter his <laughs> I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart I will enter his courts with praise I will say this is the day that the Lord has made and I will rejoice and he has made me glad So uh, let's start off with prayer Father we thank you that uh, we can be here Lord our brothers as brothers and sisters worshiping you glorifying you Lord God we thank you that uh, uh, we are a people of hope Lord God that we can look unto you that no matter what chaos is going around us we can look to you you are a fortress our shield you are our strength O God and thank you Lord we pray for Sherry and Doug, Lord God, as they are going to be, we get, pray for traveling mercies as they travel to Iraq, Lord God, in a couple of weeks. Lord, we ask you, Father, that uh, bring them safely back, oh God, and that they would do all that they have to do. And we thank you again, Lord, for such a great and mighty salvation in Jesus' name. Amen. Mighty to save forever. 
Lord, you conquered the grave. Thank you this morning, Lord. We give you glory and honor. Praise forever. You overcame the grave. 
overcame the grave. He's alive. And he's coming on the clouds. We look to your return, Lord. Let's sing, he's coming on the clouds. He's coming on the clouds. The kings and kingdoms will bow down. And every chain will break. And every chain will break. As broken hearts declare his praise. For who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah. His roaring with power and fighting our battles. And every knee will bow before him. And our God is the Lamb, the Lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. And every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb. Oh, every knee will bow before him. So open up the gates and make way. So open up the gates. Make way for the king. Yes, he's the king of kings. And our God who comes, our God who comes to save, is here to set the captives free. For who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah. His roaring with power and fighting our battles. And every knee will bow. Yes, every knee. Our God. over your life. What can stop the Lord? And who can stop the Lord Almighty? And who can stop the Lord Almighty? And who can stop the Lord Almighty? His purposes prevail. And who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the
Lord, we give you praise. Praise this morning, Lord. You know, as we close uh, Esther today, Pastor Doug's going to close the book of Esther today. You know, what's striking about it is how much King Mordecai in this story, and this is a crazy story, uh, how much he follows through in his promises to Queen Esther. We're talking like incredible follow through. The Jews are abroad. They're not at home. They're not in Israel. They're in, they're in Persia. And they need an advocate who can go before the king and plead on their behalf. Christians were, were similar, right? As Christians, we have hope knowing two things. One, I will be welcomed into God's presence when I die. And two, Jesus will one day return to reign on earth. And of course, we know more than those two things, but those are two big things in our faith. But we're also not at home, you know, or better yet, this is true. The land we occupy is not ruled by the one true king yet. Thankfully, we, have also, we also have an advocate as we are strangers in a, in a strange land, and that's Jesus. And he has promised an incredible follow-through. We begin our study of Revelation next week, and there's a promise of a follow-through there in Revelation 21 that we all long for. This is uh, Revelation 21.4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. Or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Praise God. Jesus rising from the dead is the major catalyst in all of this being true. He's alive. He's not dead. He ascended into heaven. He's coming back. He defeated sin and death uh, with his sacrifice on the cross. He holds the door open for us to enter into all the promises God have for, has for us. We can lay down our burdens uh, today before God, who has an ultimate follow-through. And he follows through on the pleadings of his people, which are brought to him by the risen, victorious, and conquering Son of God. That's Jesus Christ. Bring your 
praise and honor and glory. Help us, Lord, to be the people that we just sang about, to believe in that forgiveness, to bear our cross, Lord, as we wait for the crown. We know that the ultimate victory, the ultimate freedom is coming, Lord, in the future. And this life you've given us is not a mistake. We are not a mistake. We are not some joke, Lord. Our lives, Lord, are given to us for a reason. And that ultimately is to spread the news of Jesus Christ, to offer hope to a broken world. That is the point of why we exist. To love our fellow man, Lord, and to point them to the ultimate, the ultimate man, essentially. Adam redeemed in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to tell the treasure we found of this forgiveness, this freedom, this hope. Forgiveness and freedom from worry and doubt and pride and fear and all the things that we struggle with. And thank you that each week we can come here uh, collectively and lay down our burdens before you on the altar and say all this is true because Christ is risen. Isn't he wonderful? What a savior. God, we thank you this morning that we're going to see some of that saving grace and mercy in Esther 8 through 10. Lord, we ask you, bless Pastor Doug. We thank you for the years of study and training that he's gone through for this moment. And thank you, Lord, for all the praying that people have done for him this week. We ask now, Lord, that as we hear your word, God, speak through Doug as you always do. We thank you for this time of worship. We give you all the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. See you today. Uh, children five years of age up through third grade can be dismissed at this time for junior church. And uh, my wife is back there ready to receive you. Um, just one thing by way of announcement, Carmelo did mention it, but I just want to maybe build off of that. We will be starting a series next week on um, messages from Jesus Christ to the church, and we'll be focusing in on Re Revelation uh, chapters 1 through 3. So if you want to go ahead and start reading ahead, that would be something that I would encourage you to do in your time together. Tim will be leading us off in that series next week. All right, confession time. Um, so I don't watch a lot of TV, but as I look back over the last 10 years, I, I like action dramas. Okay. I'm just, just saying. All right. And I especially like spy movies where there's a bad guy and a good guy. And you know what happens? I, I've seen so many of these that it just repeats itself again and again, where you fight you, this bad guy, you know, he's got either some biological um, stuff he wants to put in the air and kill people or nuclear bomb, whatever it is, whatever. It's all these, all these different, you know, it, it, they change things up, but the story is pretty much the same. And the good guy catches the bad guy and normally kills him. And you go like, ah. And then all of a sudden they come back and say, yeah, but the bomb's still out there. 
right? And you take off for the end, toward the end of the movie, and they have to just in the nick of time take care of that matter too. Like, how many times have you seen that? I've seen it a million times, but they'll get me again when one of those movies come along. You know, where you go like, we got the big big guy. Oh no, we got to clean this mess up still. In many ways, that's exactly what we find when we come to Esther. We think like, okay, we got the bad guy. However, there's still a problem. I'm going to look at that with you here in just a moment. Um, just want to take you back again. I think I showed this to you a couple weeks back just to kind of orient us. Can you read that okay from up there? Okay, all right. Um, sometimes I think I put too much on a slide and people are going like, I can't read a thing he's got up there. But just, just so you know, what's really interesting in the story of Esther, you have this background in chapter one and two that covers a lengthy period of time, like nine years. And it all turns on in 474 over a period of a year, everything gets really intense. All of a sudden, Haman's edict goes out, right? And Mordecai comes and tells Esther, you got to do something about this. And she goes, I don't know if I want to. Then we all die. And if you don't, somebody else will do it. So she goes, okay, pray for three days. Three days of praying. She goes and sees the king. Asks he and Haman to come to a banquet. And then a follow-up banquet. So this is just days, right? In chapter 3, running through the beginning of chapter 8. I mean, we're just looking at days all of a sudden. Then what happens in the passage we're going to be looking at today, there's another, we're going to step kind of two months down the road a little bit, and then we're going to jump another, make sure I get my months here right, 10 months down the road. Yeah, yeah. So, so this is all the stuff that's going on. It's, it's, it's a 11, I'm sorry, nine months down the road. All right, so two, two blocks. So what has happened up to this point and again, just to orient you, this is the size of the Persian Empire. See how massive it is? And just have identified for you the, the city of Susa, which is where this is all kind of coming from. It's emanating from. But when they send out these riders and they go, it goes all through the Persian Empire, I mean, that's a lot of land for people to be riding horses on to get the messages out. And all the way through the book, you find people saying, tell everybody in the empire. And the guys are on their horses running again. Okay. So we, we've seen this all the way through. What we've seen then is this. In the first seven, eight chapters, we have found like, okay, Haman's coming on the scene and doing all this. And, and then all these lucky things happen, right? Like it just so happens that the king gets tired one night and wants them to read these annals which will put you to sleep in a nut really quick, right? And, and, and it just so happens that, that the guy turns to the right. These annals were long. He just happens to flip to the right spot, right where it's talking about Mordecai. And it just so happened that Mordecai was never honored for that when he should have been. And it just so happened that that was the night before Esther's going to finally ask and say, hey, would you please preserve my life and the life of my people? All coincidence, right? Just one lucky thing after another. No. God's clear hand runs all the way through this book. And actually, it's so powerful. God's name is never mentioned in the book. 
No other God's names are mentioned in this book. This is a book that seems to be completely horizontal and merely implying the vertical. You know why it does that? Because it, it screams to us in its silence of God that this is God. It's actually really, really powerful because you keep seeing all this stuff. You go like, that's impossible. That's not just even luck or coincidence. There's something divine going on here. You got it. So by talking at this level again and again, as if there isn't this or merely implying this, what you do is you scream and say, God. And in this first major movement in chapter seven, Haman is going to die. This, this is so amazing. Think about this. The, the night before, yeah, the, the day before, when he's first invited to the party with, at Esther's, right? He goes back to his family that, after that party. He says, man, this is the best. I am a man of great honor. I have 10 children. I have great wealth. I have, I have, I have. By the time you come to the beginning of chapter 8, Haman's going to lose it all. Listen to what the first two verses of chapter 8 says. That same day, the same day that he is impaled and hung out so that when people walk by and they see his body hanging, they know there is a man who has been dishonored. He's been cursed. And we want nothing to do with him. Folks, in one day. It's crazy. It's crazy. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman. Everything he owned is gone. And as the story progresses, all ten of his sons are going to be impaled. Murdered, killed, and then impaled. It's so interesting because I don't know if, if you've done any reading in Esther. It lists by name all 10 of Haman's sons. Try to pronounce all of them. I mean, it, it's, it's a job in itself. But it's reminded us everything Haman thought he had, he completely lost. All gone. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Because if you're the enemy of the Jews, you're ultimately the enemy of who at this time period? God himself, for it is, God, it is his people. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther told him how Mordecai was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. You're talking about irony. It's off the charts. Okay. Haman's dead. His boys are going to die. All his estate has gone to Mordecai, Esther, and ultimately Mordecai. But there's still a problem. Because that edict that Haman actually had given... You can't, in this culture, in this time, when the king puts out an edict, you can't just say, oops, sorry, I goofed up. Um, let's just kind of pull that thing back. You can't do it. All you can do is put another edict out there to counterbalance it in some way. And so Esther 
is in a panic. Remember when she first came before the king and and, the text says he extended his scepter? Remember that? Did you know he has to extend his scepter twice in this book? Here's the second time. Look at chapter 8, verse 3. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the golden scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. So I don't know all exactly what that looked like, but at some point, she fell down before him, came before him, and just dropped to the ground, weeping and saying, can you revoke that? Well, revoking it wouldn't be an option. But he's going to give another solution, isn't he? Look at what it says. Oh, incidentally, let me, let me pop here. This, this will just kind of guide our way through, through the passage here a little bit. It, 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 she goes on to say this in verse, uh, verse 5. If it please the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he ple- is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the, overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all of the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see the disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my own family? And Esther's saying, do something. Well, he can't revoke that one. He can only put another one out there. So look what happens in verse 7. King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew. Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. So he's just saying, look, look, I've already showed you that I'm for you. Let me give you an idea now. Now, I want you to write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as seems best to you. Seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can ever be revoked. Not the one by Haman, and not the one you're going to write right now. None of them can be. Verse 9. At once the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan. Now this probably is taking place somewhere, March, April, May... Late May, early June-ish, okay, is what we're looking at here. Um, It had been two months before that Haman had done his edict. Now it's two months later, and Mordecai is going to put out an edict, okay? But they got to do it before the 11th month, because in the 11th month, um, these enemies of the Jews are going to be able to kill all the Jews that they know. I, I tried to figure out this week, I went to... All the Old Testament professors I know at the school, in the seminary, talked to four of them. And I said, guys, how many Jews were living in the Persian Empire at this time? Okay. And they all looked at me and said, I don't know. I said, look, I'm a New Testament guy. Okay. I spend most of my time in the New Testament. I know there's about 5 million Jews in the Roman Empire. So I know that. So how do we go back and what do we end up in the Persian? So I'm not sure. At least a million. Two, I I don't know. A lot. And this edict is allowing them to kill, Haman's edict, all men, all women, 
and all children. It's the Holocaust at that time. There would be nobody left. You know, already at this time, Zerubbabel has gone back to the land in, in, in Israel, in Palestine. And he's already facing all kinds of opposition to rebuilding the temple. And, and people are against him and they're trying to stop him, all kinds of stuff. They must be just chomping at the bits at this time. Saying like, man, let's have at it. This is a very serious time for the Jews. Haman's dead, but the edict remains. And all the enemies of the Jews could say, hey, the edict says we can kill on that 12th month. I said the 11th month, sorry, the 12th month. In that 12th month, which February-ish, something like that, maybe early March, um, we can kill all the Jews. And so there's this short period of time to kind of get about nine months to try to do something for the Jews. Do you see how dangerous it is? So listen what happens. So at once the royal secretaries are summoned on the 27th day of the third month. They wrote out all of Mordecai's orders to the Jews, to all the satraps and governors. Uh, These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of all the people. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes and sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring. Um, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. You don't read that the first time around. Mordecai saying, I want the fastest horses imaginable. And let's get that out there. And man, let's get that message to the Jews. Because you think about it. If it takes weeks for you to hear this as a Jew in some of the far distant areas of the empire. You've gotten the bad news. It's going to be another couple of weeks till you get the good news. And about that time, the, the, the enemies are going like, ah, oh, yeah. For about three weeks, they're going, yeah. That's going to change rather quickly. But for a short period of time, they're thinking like, we, we got this. The king's edict, verse 11, granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the same words that were used in the first edict. The armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their children and the women and their children and to plunder the property of their enemies. Now, what's important to know is this edict is not allowing the Jews to go and just kill at random. It's allowing them to defend themselves against the people that want to kill them and to protect their children and to to protect their wives. It does say that when they go, they can then plunder everything, all the resources of those that were opposing them. But I want you to notice something. Although that's what the edict says, watch as the story continues, because the one thing the Jews do not do is plunder from the opponents and what they have. They don't. Three times it's going to be mentioned. They do not plunder. And you know one of the reasons for that? So that people couldn't look back and say, oh, those Jews were just out to get more money. They just wanted stuff. Oh, no. The edict may have permitted it. The edict permits them to defend themselves to the point of killing their enemies. Yes, absolutely. And the Jews, both in Susa and all through the empire, say to themselves, we will not take any of their things. That's a really powerful statement. Okay, so it goes out. The couriers ride the royal horses and 
spurred by the king's command and, and, and so forth. So the, the initiating a plan of deliverance, that's what we have here running down to verse 17 of chapter 8. Listen to the responses that you get in verse 15 and, and 17. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was real, wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. Now look, folks. We've all been around politics enough to know that politicians are politicians. I don't know what it's like here in New Jersey. Man alive, you ought to see the mail I'm getting these days on politicians. Is it, do you have the same issue? Oh, I mean, you would read this, this guy's the biggest scumbag that ever lived and blah, 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 right? And then his people write about that guy. This person's not even human. You know, I mean, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I take that stuff, that negative stuff, I just throw it in the trash can. I say, if you're going to tell me what you believe, don't trash the other guy and gal. I just, anyway, that's, that's, that's another message. Um, but here's what you find with so many politicians. They're always, not all of them, there's some good politicians, some. Um, always work in the street to make sure that they can move ahead. They find out where the winds are blowing and they go that direction. Isn't that what happens? And that's what happens here. Mordecai comes out in all of his royalty. And man, if you're part of the city of Susa, you're going like, yeah, Mordecai's our guy. Oh, yeah, right. You wanted him dead in just, <laughs> just a couple, you know, two months before, but whatever. Okay. So he comes out and the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. We're pro-Jewish now, right? Um, for the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. And in every province and in every city in which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many of the other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Isn't that what happens? You know, so... Mordecai comes out, the edict comes out, and all of a sudden people go like, you know, not only do I like the Jews, I think I would like to become a Jew. But at the end of the day, what's driving them is their fear. But all the Jews, and folks, this is, this is before the 12th month, right? So we're in the third month. Um, so they still got nine months. They haven't battled anybody yet, but they're just rejoicing that there's actually hope now. There's something possible they can do. And they're happy. And people that aren't so happy are thinking like, maybe conversion is a good idea about now. That's what's happening. Because now it's not fearful to be a Jew. It's fearful if you're not. Amazing how things can turn on their head so quickly, isn't it? Chapter 9, verses 1 to 19 we have the implementation of the plan. It's been designed, and now when chapter nine opens up, we're gonna to jump to the 12th month. So we're gonna jump in time nine months, from the third month to the ninth month. It was on the 13th of this month that Haman's edict says, you can kill any Jew, period. And this edict says on that day, the Jews can defend themselves against anybody that tries to hurt them. Chapter 9, verse 1. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, 
The enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities and in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews. Why? Because they were noble people. Not exactly. Because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. So he gives a summary. And, and verse 5, the Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what they pleased to those who hated them. So he starts out with this summary. And basically, you've got all the government officials who are going, which way is the wind blowing? It's pro-Jewish right now. We are pro-Jewish. And that's what they do. And so now they support the Jews. Before they were, some of them would have been fine with being against the Jews. You know, that's what politicians do. And so on this day, there is, there is unfortunately a lot of death. But the death is the enemies of the Jewish people. So plan is implemented broadly in the first five verses, specifically in what follows. And I found this to be interesting. Remember I showed you that map back here of, there we go, Susa. What he does is he spends most of his time talking about what happens at Susa. And he has kind of a throwaway line. Oh, yeah, and 75,000 people died empire-wide. Like, oh, wow, okay, okay. But, but he's going to start there, and then he's going to kind of move out. So listen to what happens. Verse 6. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed, and I'm not going to read this list, but here you have a list of all the ten sons of Haman. Verse 10, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Remember I told you that? So these ten boys, and, 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 and the, the writer of Esther wants you to know something. He's going to actually give you the name of every one of those sons so that everybody would know God's judgment is complete. All of them died which is really sad. They followed in their father's stead, unfortunately. But they did not lay hands on their plunder. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king. So the king calls in the queen and says, uh, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the, city of, in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition it will be given you. What is your request? It will be granted you. It, can you imagine it? King calls her and says, okay, here's, here's the status report. 500 died. 10 have died. Stuff's happening all over the empire. Anything else you want, Esther? Esther said, yeah, I think I do, actually. Um, I, I have two requests. Number one, can you impale the bodies of the 10 sons of Haman? King says, sure, we'll do that. And she says, one other thing. Could you give us just one more day, just in Susa, not all through the empire, just in Susa? Because there's a lot of enemies here 
that, 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 that are still after us, if we can have one more day of defending ourselves, that would be really good. King says, okay. And they then impale all 10 of Haman's sons and 300 more people die in the city of Susa. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people that hate the Jews. Isn't it? So it's, it's, a, it's a strong story. And people go like, this sounds like just, just revenge. And I guess one of the things I would say is, it's number one, to defend. And number two, the impaling of the sons becomes a graphic reminder for everybody, don't mess with the Jews. That's how they're thinking. You know, I wouldn't do it quite that way. I'm not saying I would do it quite that way either. I'm saying in that world, that's what they did. So they implement the plan. In verse 20 of chapter 9. Oh, I, I, I guess I should. Let me, let me just end by saying this. Um, in verse, verse 16. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and, and to get relief from their enemies. So it wasn't to get revenge. It was to get relief. Do you see the difference? Let's kill anybody that's ever said any given a, a Jewish joke. It's not, that's not what's going on. These are people that want to kill the Jews. And out in the province, it wasn't extended to two days. That would have just probably gotten completely out of hand. That was only asked for in Susa. Out in the province, it was only that one day. But that was significant. They killed, verse, uh, verse 16, 75,000 of them, but they did not lay their hands on any of the plunder. It's not revenge. It's for relief. It's to defend themselves. And they wanted nothing of the resources of those that they ended up removing. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th, they rested and made it a day of feasting. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th. And then on the 15th, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. This is why rural Jews, those living in the villages, observed the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and fasting, a day for giving presents to each other. Do you see the difference? So in Susa, the battle raged on the 13th and the 14th. On the 15th, they rested and rejoiced and celebrated deliverance and gave things to other people. In the, outside of the city, there was only one day, the 13th, where everything was actually, where the battle occurred. But on the 14th, they rested and celebrated. And so what happens, interestingly enough, when you come to chapter 9, verse 20, Remembering the experience of deliverance, both Mordecai and Esther are going to write letters out to all the Jews, both in Susa and throughout the entire province. And basically what it, what it says is when, when they write this out, Mordecai basically says, okay, now look, 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 we want to have some semblance of order here. We know that you rested the first time just on the 14th and we didn't rest till the 15th. 
So what we're doing is we're going to enact something where every year on the 14th and the 15th, everybody celebrates what, what, what has happened here. And everybody goes, okay, we're in. Okay. So you have a whole section there, verse 20, running all the way down to like verse 27, where it's just explaining that whole thing. Okay. And, and the reason it's all being written, it's all happening is it's because they have been preserved and delivered by who? Ultimately, right? But they've been preserved and delivered from Haman and everything that he was trying to do against them. So Mordecai sends out this letter. And then in verse 29, Esther follows it up with another letter. And, 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 and in the midst of all that, the author, whoever is writing the book of Esther, we don't know. But who's ever writing the book basically says, and that's why Jews have continued this practice year after year after year. And you know, folks, to this day, those that are serious in their faith in Judaism will celebrate, celebrate the Feast of Purim. Um, do you remember where that name comes from? Do you remember back when, when Haman was determined I'm going to destroy these Jews. But I don't know when to do it. So he got together with his astrologers and magicians. And, and you know, they, they had all kinds of different ways to, 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 to do this. But they would, they would often put maybe pe pebbles or bones with marks on them. And they shake that thing. It was kind of like Yahtzee. You ever play Yahtzee? You know, you, you, Yahtzee, you can shake that thing up and throw it out. And, hey, oh, hey, 12th month, put it back in. Okay, 13th day. We'll kill him on the 12th month, 13th day. That's what the gods want. Yay, let's do it. Sometimes say this is a, it's kind of like dice. It's kind of, so that makes this kind of a, a dicey holiday, I suppose. No, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, sorry, my bad. I just thinking about it doesn't quite work. But anyway, but, but here's, here's what's interesting to me about it. I, I couldn't resist. I told my wife coming up in the car, honey, I think I might say this. She goes, don't. But I did. <laughs> so you can tell Sherry when you see her afterwards, she, you were right, Sherry. He shouldn't have done it. But here's the irony. The very expression from their pagan gods, which was saying, this is when you kill the Jews. The dice, the casting of the lot. That is going to be the name of this holiday for the Jews forever. Because it's not about dice. From your gods, it's about something much bigger. And, that, I mean, and it, the irony of that is just unbelievable. And so you have all that kind of presented in this passage. And he, he says, that's what we name it. And that's why we name it that. It will be ironic forever when people think about it. Isn't that what the, the pagans did? Yeah, yeah. There's somebody bigger than the pagans. That's the point, isn't it? Esther sends out this letter also in verses 29 to 32. So Esther, Queen Esther, daughter of Abiahel, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with a full authority to confirm what had already been said. And so you have that. And then the book ends this way. After initiating a plan implementing the plan, and now remembering forever that plan of deliverance, or what, the experience of deliverance, there's a guarantee that comes at the very end in chapter 10. Look what it says. 
King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores. First time I read that, I thought, like, who cares? What's that have to do with this story? Like, all right, whatever. And I think part of what he's trying to do for us is say, is this. This guy's empire is huge. You you can look at the, the islands in the Mediterranean. This guy is just, it's extensive. And all of his acts of power and might together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted. So you can look at Xerxes and his acts and his power and his influence. But I want you to remember somebody else when you do. I want you to remember Mordecai. This Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, and, and, and all of the things that he had done, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? And I wish we had those annals today extant. We don't. I'd love to read those. But, or have somebody else read them and translate them for me. Whatever. Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes. Preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. And the book ends. And and again, if the writer of the book would have checked with me before they wrote all this, I would have said, slip God's name in there, at least on the last sentence. But they don't. Because it's a pushback to you. In your heart, you're going, well, this has to be the work of God. You got it. And it begins to push you back to the promises given to Abraham. The people that curse you, I will curse. And the people that bless you, I will bless. Right? I mean, it just takes you back to all that stuff. And, And you get that running start. And you just kind of begin running through. And you say, God is behind all of this. Folks, I want you to think about something. Xerxes is in his, uh, I think his 12th year. He, he's going to be murdered in another eight years. He's going to be dead. Some, some, some of his men don't like something he does and they kill him. His son, Artaxerxes, will become king. And it is under, under Artaxerxes that Ezra is going to be sent back to Palestine to reform the people. And Nehemiah is the cupbearer of the son of King Xerxes. And whatever all Mordecai does, God is going to use that to set the scene. So when that ruler comes, because rulers just come and go. And when that next ruler comes, God is going to strategically put Ezra right there and then put Nehemiah right there. And he's going to accomplish his purposes. And they're going to go back to a land and they're going to have good times and bad times. But ultimately, the Redeemer is going to come. You see, you won't stop the purposes of God. So here's my question for you. How do you apply this today? Take up arms, Christians. Really? No. You know, this was sad to me. I don't know if you had remembered this back in the 90s. But on February 25th, 1994, newspapers reported that 55 Palestinians had been killed and 170 more wounded at the mosque at Abraham's tomb in Hebron, Israel. The assailant, Beirut Goldstein, 
was beaten to death by an angry mob immediately after the attack. Goldstein was, was an American physician who had emigrated to Israel in 1982. According to the newspaper, friends had seen him only hours before his assault on the Palestinians in his synagogue celebrating Purim. And there was something that went off in this guy's head. And he was saying, I can just go and try to kill as many Palestinians as possible. That is a complete misapplication of this passage, folks. But you can see how people could just take something like this, say, well, that means I can do No, 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 no. The Jews were defending themselves, incidentally. So how do we apply it? Well, nobody in here is for, I'm assuming no one's in here, is, would be in support of abortion. I hope we would, we would all be against that because we believe in the life of the child in the womb. But I hope that also means that nobody in here would be in favor of bombing an abortion clinic. Because that's not how we battle. That's not the way it's supposed to be in our day, folks. So let me just say a couple things, and I'll come back to that one. Let me give you kind of a, an overview that I would say, I, I think this is kind of what the passage is saying in some timeless ways, but then I want to punch us into it, okay? So here it is. Celebrate God's mediated deliverance. And, and like, I always go through, this, go, go through all this stuff with my wife, and my wife said on that one, you better tell them what mediated means because people aren't going to know what you're talking about. I said, okay, okay. Mediated just means God can deliver us directly, and he can also do it through people. Mediated means it's through people. Okay, that's for my wife. All right. Celebrate God's mediated deliverance because the deliverance does come because of Mordecai and Esther, Correct. God's mediated deliverance of his people from evil enemies through representatives of his people in fulfillment of his promises. And that's a mouthful, but I was trying, trying, to get it, trying to get it all in. This passage is saying God's people should always be celebrating deliverance mediated through people that come out of the promises that he's actually given us. Does that make you think of anybody? other than Mordecai and Esther, as you run down through the centuries and you come to the first century in Jesus Christ, God's ultimate deliverance is mediated through Christ. I mean, the ultimate Mordecai, the ultimate Esther, because they were fallible, they didn't start out so well, they finally rose to the occasion. Yeah, fair enough. Jesus started out well and he ended well. And Mordecai tried to guarantee that Jews would be protected. But when Mordecai dies and after Nehemiah is off the scene, there's just going to be all kinds of other problems. But not Jesus Christ. And Doug Finkbeiner and everybody sitting in here was completely lost in their sin. We were on a crash course for death and hell. There was no hope. And God in his mercy, the father sent the son and the son was willing to come. The son lived this perfect life and he died for me. And he told, tells us in that moment that, that, that because he's died and resurrected, you and I have hope and victory over death, sin, and hell. Isn't that true? That's guaranteed. And just like these people were called to remember it, 
the experience every year. You and I are called once, well, however often we do it, we do it once a month. Once a month, we put out the juice in the bread because we're telling people, don't ever forget the deliverance. And this deliverance is for good. You know, folks, I never have to worry about going to hell now. I, I, I am always in Christ, accepted by the Father, secure in him. And that's never going to change. So Mordecai, at the best, his guarantee was short-lived. Jesus' guarantee goes on forever. You say, yeah, 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 but Doug, there's still injustice in the world. We have brothers and sisters all across the globe who are being martyred. A study was done several years ago, and I haven't updated it recently, but a missiologist had look at, looked at all the deaths, all the deaths of martyrs, Christian martyrs, in the first 1900 years of the church. And he was just comparing that with the amount of deaths in the ninth, in the, in the, in, in, from 1900 to about 19, I don't know, 90 or something like that. And he argued that there's been more Christian martyrs in the 1900s than there were in the first 1900 years of the church. And that's not gotten any, gotten any better, folks. I mean, we're, we're in America. But, but what our brothers and sisters are going through in some of these Islamic cultures in Nigeria, it's tragic. I hope for all of us that on a consistent basis, we're praying for them. So where's their hope? At the end of the day, their hope and our hope is in the coming of Jesus Christ. Isn't it? Do you remember over in Revelation chapter 7? Or is it 6? Romans said it might be. Maybe six or seven. I could find it real quick, but I'll just tell it to you. Where you have a whole bunch of martyrs in light of the tribulation period who, the Bible says, they're under the throne, which, which you don't get any closer to God's presence than that. And it says that they continue to cry out, how long, O Lord, till there's justice on the earth? And one day, King Jesus will come. And when he comes back the second time, folks, he comes as the king, king of kings and lord of lords. And the one who has begged and been patient and called to people for centuries and centuries and centuries, one day he's going to come and then it's too late. And King Jesus will judge all those that oppose him. He'll deliver his people and we will be entered into bliss as, as, as Carmelo read for us for the rest of eternity. But we're not there yet. We've experienced his deliverance in light of the death, burial, and resurrection. We're still waiting for the completion of that at his coming. And at best, the, the, the book of Esther, it is a reminder that God keeps his promises. And he will, what he's done for his people there, he will ultimately do for his people because of the coming of his son. Okay, I think Biner got it. You always give us the big Jesus story thing. Okay, he died for us, he's coming back. Like, I know that. I, I hope we know it. I hope it changes the way we live. If, if we lose the big story, we have nothing, folks. We have nothing. However... 
how do we battle now? Well, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, as Tim preached to us a couple weeks ago. We wrestle, we, rather, we are called to join hands as God's people and out of lives of integrity in which we're holding hands together as God's people, we're supposed to step out and by the power of the Spirit, not only live out the truth, but live out the truth loudly by the way we speak. Which is why in Ephesians 6, Paul says, pray for me that I will be bold in my witness. Listen to what Paul says over in 2 Corinthians. I know, I know I'm going over here a little bit. I'm really going to wrap this up fast. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Listen to this. I love this. I love this. It's so good. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 4. Paul says this. There it is. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Jesus Christ. God calls you and I to be men and women that live out the gospel and look for opportunities to proclaim the truth to people around us. Because what we realize is they're completely consumed. And the answer is for God's spirit to work through us, for lights to come on in their minds so that at some point they go like, wow, I'm a rebel against God. I need Jesus. And God begins to take people who are as lost as lost can be, like the, the, the apostle Paul, who at that time was Saul, the guy who was the greatest enemy of the church. I mean, if you wanted to find anybody who could probably stop what the church was doing, of course it wouldn't happen because of God, it would be Paul, Saul at that time. And in chapter 9 of Acts, God grabs this guy and saves this guy so that he now becomes the greatest asset for the advancement of the gospel. You preach and teach and love on people. You raise children to the glory of God. Those young people grow up and they begin proclaiming and lives are changed and communities begin to change and even cultures can change. But we do it one person at a time from the inside out. And those strongholds are brought down. People come to know Jesus Christ. An entire enemies now become beloved friends. That's what the gospel does. Jesus has won the big one, folks. You can relax. It's coming. But you and I have a lot of skirmishes between now and then. So live the gospel. Live it out loud. Because it's, it's the one hope. It's the thing you can do for the glory of God and the good of his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the unchanging God who is in complete control of all that happens. You're never caught off guard. You didn't panic when Haman came up with his first edict. No, no. You're God of gods, Lord of lords. You're the one who has sent Jesus, God the Son, who has loved us, died for us, risen, ascended, seated at your right hand, coming back to deliver us one day. 
Father, may we never lose that narrative. May we remember it again and again and again. And then, Lord, encourage us to be men and women that are completely overwhelmed with the goodness of the gospel. So that it changes our relationships. It changes how we think. It changes what we do. It changes what we say to all, including those that oppose you. Because we love them and we humbly move toward them with the truth of the gospel, knowing that that alone can take enemies and make them beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. So, Father, we want to engage in true spiritual warfare, but not like the world around us. Rather, we want to do it as your people, used by you, to transform a culture. In Christ's name I pray, amen. the depths out of the depths I cry to you in darkest places I will call incline your ear to me anew and hear my cry for mercy to count were you to count my sinful ways how could I come before your throne yet full forgiveness meets my gaze I stand redeemed by grace alone I will wait for Put your hope. So put your hope in God alone. Take courage in His power to save. Completely and forever one. By Christ emerging from the grave. I will wait for you. I will Now he has come, and now he has come to make a way, and God himself has paid the price. 
that all who trust in him today find healing in his sacrifice that all that trust in him today find healing in his sacrifice I will wait for you I will wait for you through the storm and through the Lord, we, we thank you this morning, God, for the great mercies that we see through the Old Testament in wild stories, Lord. We thank you for the ultimate deliverance that come, has come through Jesus Christ and the ultimate fulfillment of that promise of a redeemed life and your return, Lord, and your reign on this planet. Lord, as Pastor Doug had asked, Lord, will we be living this out loud this week? And of course, all the time, but going into our Mondays tomorrow, going into our afternoons today, God, may we live this out loud. May the great hope that we have, the great hope that we sang about today, come out of us, Lord, into a world that desperately needs to hear the truth. May we be loving along the way, not aggressive, not attacking, not accusing, but loving, Lord, along the way, full of grace and mercy. We thank you for this morning, God. Now, as we go, we pray your blessing over us until we meet again next week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a nice week.